Hi, my name is Michaela, and the Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 68, verses 1 through 6. Let God rise up. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him run scared before him. Like smoke is driven away, drive them away. Like wax melting before fire, let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad and celebrate before God. Let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Exalt the one who rides the clouds. The Lord is his name. Celebrate before him. Father of orphans and defender of widows is God of his holy habitation. God settles the lonely in their homes. He sets prisoners free with happiness. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Emily. Um, the New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 4, 1 through 7. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Casey. <clears throat> the gospel reading is found in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Would you remain standing as we pray? Come, Holy Spirit, and open our eyes that we would see Jesus today. And open our ears that we would hear your word to us today. And open our hearts that we would be able to respond with love and with obedience to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, we're in week six, part six of our series on the Nicene Creed, and it's called We Believe In. Now, each week we've tried to recap just a little bit of why we're doing this series. So, the Nicene Creed was formalized in the year 325 A.D. by a council that was held in the city of Nicaea. Over 300 bishops from all around the region were convened, and what they were doing was putting down in phrases and in this formal document the core of Christian faith. There were earlier versions of this. There was a pattern of faith, a rule of faith that some other church fathers had developed, and so they built on many of these statements. But actually what you'll find is that 
the great majority of these phrases come from the New Testament themselves. And so these bishops, what they were doing is they were saying, look, let's take these phrases from Paul and from John and from others and let's put it together so that when someone says, I am a Christian, they will know what they mean. And so it is a powerful document that helps us locate the core of Christian faith. And that's kind of important in our day because sometimes you may have the impression when someone says, oh, are you a Christian? And and you think, oh, are you asking me what I think about Genesis or if it's a young earth or old earth? Or, oh, are you asking my opinions about politics? Or, oh, are you saying this? Because there's so many other things that get associated um, with the term Christian. It's worth stepping back and saying, what really does it mean? What's the heart of the Christian faith? Now, so far in this series, you probably haven't had much issue with anything that we've said because the truth is we've talked about God the Father, we've talked about Jesus the Son, and last week we talked about the Holy Spirit, which might have been maybe challenging or eye-opening, but still you kind of know, hey, the Trinity, can't argue with the Trinity, I'm good. But this week, this is where we get to have our feathers ruffled just a bit. Because this week we're going to say we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, the word Catholic, let me say it right up front, is a Latin word that means universal. We're not speaking today about the Roman Catholic Church, although it's great to have the Pope in the USA, and he seems to be doing good work. But today we're talking about what it means to be one holy, universal, and apostolic church, a worldwide church. Now, as soon as we say this, many of us are thinking, okay, Glenn, can I sort of like not say that part of the creed? Because I totally believe in the Father, I'm good. Believe in the Son, yep, right there with you. The Spirit, you got it. The church, do I have to? Do I have to? Several years ago, before we started New Life Downtown, I did a little, um, had a little meeting with some folks, and there were, you know, it was sort of an open invitation, and we met at a house that was up on the hill here. The house no longer exists. It was right next to the old abandoned fish market. All of that has been torn down. It's a beautiful facility now called the Pinery. But, but several years ago, there, was, there were a lot of young people that were living in a house up there that I knew. And so I said, hey, let's have a little get together and let's just chat about what you guys think about faith and church and life with God and all of that. And so one of the exercises we did that evening was we sat down and gave everybody a, a, a note card and a pen And I said, I'm going to say a word, and then I want you to write down for the next 60 seconds, I want you to write down all the word associations that come to mind, all other words that come to mind when I say this word. They said, okay, ready. And I said, okay, the word is church. And at first, you know, writing, and then all of a sudden, it gets a little more negative. So as they're sharing it, they're saying, oh, community, ooh, friends, and then all of a sudden, it gets real. And they're like, uh, hip- hypocrites, um, judgmental, um, unloving, um, corrupt, and on and on it goes. And if we really dig deep, our associations with church tend to be negative. So I get it. I get that it's troubling to say, why do we have to get to this part of the creed? Why can't the creed stop after I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life? Why can't we end shortly after that? Why this thing about church? Well, here's what we're stuck with. In the New Testament, there is nothing written that does not have a Christian community in mind. 
Actually, let's back it up. In the Old Testament, when God begins to launch his plan of salvation, he calls a people. He calls a people. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament is the, the vehicle to carry his plan out in the world. And then in the New Testament, it shouldn't come as a surprise that when God in Christ launches and announces his kingdom on the earth, there's a people that is being formed. And so there are congregations. You won't find in the New Testament a single Christian who is not also a member of a community called a church. And so this is a bit troubling. In fact, there are no real exhortations or instructions written primarily to individuals. You say, oh, what about Philemon or, or Timothy or Titus? Yes, but even those have households and congregations in mind. Everything in our Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, came out of communities, a people, the people of God, and was written for those communities. Because life with God looks like life with one another. So now we're stuck because we can admit, we were fine admitting that we don't like saying, I believe in one holy church. But then the Bible seems to come to us out of communities and congregations and saying, wait a minute, what do we do with this? If I were to say to you, what do you think of when you think of church? What would come to mind? Just phrase the question this way. When you think of church, what do you see? What do you see when you think of church? It's maybe helpful to think about church in this phrase. You use this phrase a lot in Christian theology, the now and the not yet. Something that is true and yet not yet fully true. You are a saint you are a saint in Christ, and you're like, yes, but not yet. Yes, you are fully righteous, and yet not yet being made, have completed that work. So there is this now and not yet. The kingdom of God is here now already, and not quite yet fully here. I think it might be helpful to think of the church in that way as well, that the church is a now and not yet church. These things that we say in the creed about the church, they are true already now, and yet, not yet. It's like, yeah, but there's parts of it that are not. So the phrase in the creed is this, we believe in one holy, Catholic or universal, if you'd like, and apostolic church. What does it mean to say that? The way I'd like to kind of work through this with all of you this morning is to pick four objections that kind of correspond to those four words. We've got one, holy, worldwide, and apostolic. And I want us to set them against four objections, four things that we sort of say, wait a minute, I'll tell you what I see when you say church. This is what I see. So number one, when you say church, I see a divided church. I see a divided church. No one even agrees on anything, so who cares, Glenn? You can read this author, and they'll say this, and this other author will say that, and I listen to this podcast, and they said something different from the fellow I heard on TV and all of this stuff. I, I don't even know. It's all so confusing. So I see a divided church, and yet the creed has us confess almost prophetically something radical. The creed has us say we believe in one church. It's remarkable, isn't it? Our New Testament reading this morning in Ephesians, Paul says there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, 
that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. Paul's driving home the point that, listen, there really is only one people of God, one church. Maybe it's helpful to say that before the Father, there is really only one church. And we've got all these little divisions and, and things that we say, well, this matters more, this matters more. And before God, he's saying, I, as far as I'm concerned, there's one church, one people. And yet, what we see in this world, in this earth, is this divided reality. To say it in philosophy words, we'd say unity is an ontological reality, meaning it is the oneness of the church. We just are one. Whether we see it or not, we actually are. But the thing is, unity must be given some substance. Because you can't just sing kumbaya and pretend that we all like each other and we're all one. Right? So how do you give unity substance? What is it that draws us together? Do you remember that at the beginning of the series on the Creed, we put that illustration up of a wagon wheel? And do you remember we said, look, the spokes of the wheel, when you emphasize the distinctiveness of each congregation or each little group or each denomination, all of a sudden those spokes grow farther apart when you focus on this direction. But when the spokes of the wheel move toward the center, then all of a sudden the spokes actually become closer together. Something happens when we begin to focus on what it is that we actually have in common. That's one of the reasons we're doing a series on the Nicene Creed. It's the only confession of Christian faith that unites every stream of the church. Western, Eastern, Protestant, Catholic, you name it. Every denomination, non-denomination. The creed is the one thing that says, hey, hey, remember Father, Son, Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sins, baptism, the world to come. So when we start to think about that, we're moving towards the center. And as we move towards the center, we end up actually moving toward one another in some small way. But unity doesn't just requires substance, it also requires a little bit of visibility, doesn't it? There must be some way that you can give visible expression to this. Several months ago, I was attending a conference in the UK, in, in England, and, and it was a remarkable event because all of a sudden, in, in, in the middle of it, they invited up uh, the Catholic Cardinal of London, who in previous years had been sort of critical of this evangelical charismatic group that was organizing the conference. And he came on the stage and was given a warm greeting and encouraging uh, everyone about the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And people are sort of doing this, like, wow, really? Like, okay, you know. And then they bring on the stage the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, who's sort of the, the figurehead of the Anglican Church. Now, if you know this, you know that these two groups of people have centuries of history of killing one another. <laughs> okay? It's kind of a big deal. And all of a sudden, they're, they're, they're there on the stage together praising and affirming each other's work for the kingdom of God. And one of them said this. He said, look, when we sit down to talk, we remember all of our differences and our disagreements. But when we bend our knees in prayer, all of a sudden there's something visible about our unity. And they began to say there's really two ways that our unity is given visibility. One is when we bend our knees in prayer, but the other is in the service of the poor. Because when you start to say, you know, look, all of us together are saying, for the least of these, we're going to treat them as if they were Christ. All of a sudden, these other divisions start to disappear. You know what I'm thrilled about? I'm thrilled that stuff like this is happening in Colorado Springs. 
I'm thrilled to see, last week I met with the representative from, from Catholic Charities and to hear about how they're partnering with Springs Rescue Mission and the Salvation Army and, and work is being done to create a new day shelter for our city. And I'm, I'm, what I'm seeing is the visible expression of unity seen in the service of the poor. That's a beautiful thing. In fact, in a couple of weeks, uh, First Pres is hosting an evening of worship and of prayer, an ecumenical night for the whole city where we can come and worship and pray together. And then the very next day, go in different groups and serve, do serving projects all around the city. That's a beautiful thing because we can give unity visibility when we're in prayer and in service of the poor. So yes, we may see a divided church, but we confess that we believe in the one church. Second objection is, okay, Glenn, that's nice, but <laughs> you want to know what I really see? I see an imperfect church. I see a flawed and broken church. I mean, after all, the church is a broken human institution. And yet the creed has us say we believe in the holy church, one holy church. Like, I, 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 you're like, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see holy. I see flawed. I see broken. I see human. I see hurtful. It's true. The church is flawed and broken. And that's why there's room for you. That's why there's room for you. If this was a collection of people who are already put together, who are already wonderful, who are already just amazing, then there wouldn't be any room for the Lord to add to our number those who are being saved. That's the way the book of Acts says it. He added to their number those who were being saved. We're all in the middle of a process, and sometimes our process gets public, and sometimes our process gets messy, but that's the part of being in the church. So if believing in a holy church doesn't mean moral perfection, what does holy mean? When you look at it through the Scriptures, there's certainly an element of holiness that means a, a movement towards being like God, for sure. But holiness begins by being separated from, marked out. When we say we believe in a holy church, what we're saying is we believe in a people who are marked out, set apart from the world. That means, you guys, that we are the original alternate society. We're the original alternative community. We're the ones that live in a different way where everything else around us functions by self-interest and, and selfishness or greed or whatever or power. We're the ones who say, no, actually we, we're living in a new kind of community that functions in a very different way. We're living in a community that lives in self-giving love, that functions in this Christ-centered sort of way. You might say we, as a, as a church, the church is the visible expression of the kingdom. And it's a radically different kind of kingdom, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about a king who announces his kingdom by dying. That doesn't sound like any king I've ever known. That doesn't sound like any kingdom I've ever known. A king who takes on his head not a crown of gold and jewels, but a crown of thorns, a king who doesn't kill his enemies, but lets his enemies destroy him that he might forgive them with his own blood. Radically different kingdom. At the heart of Christian community, I think, is Christ-like forgiveness. 
This is why Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says all these things about what it means to live life together as the church, and he's constantly teaching and pouring into his young congregation in Ephesus. And then he says at the, end, at the end of chapter 4, he says, look, here it is, okay? Be kind and tenderhearted to one another, forgiving one another, even as Christ has forgiven you. At the heart of what sets us apart as an alternative society, as an alternate community, what sets us apart is not anything else than the radical forgiveness we have learned to receive and give. That's what marks us out. To say we believe in one holy church is to say, I believe in being part of a story and a people that is different than the society around me. And its differences in the way it gives and receives forgiveness. So, okay, all right, Glenn, that's cool, man. I'm with you. I like it. So far, so good. But let's be real. Objection number three I see an irrelevant church. Church is kind of tacky, but it's not just irrelevant like uncool, I, I mean, irrelevant like it doesn't fit me. And so you hear things from people. I went to church. This wasn't me. It's not my thing. It's not my bag. You know? Or the other line is, well, I have church. I have church. I have church with my friends. Me and my people. We do church up in the wilderness. (laughs) We got our thing, man. We go camping. We got our brewskis. We got our chats around the fire. Like, That's my church, man. I like it. I once um, asked Eugene Peterson, I said, Eugene, there are a lot of people who take your writing about church and they agree with your critique about the modern American church and so they just opt out, like, you know, and they, they just prefer to do the home thing and what would you say to them? Like, did you envision your writings being used this way and... He said, I think, he said, no, I didn't. And he said, I I think what I would ask them is, is there room for anyone who is not like you? See, it's all good and fine to have church on your deck with a couple of swigs of good beverage. The question is, is there room for anyone who is not like you? Or is it all just people who are just like you, people who you're already comfortable with. See, the creed, when it says we believe in one holy Catholic church, if we take that word and translate it and say worldwide, we're saying we believe in a worldwide church. To believe in a worldwide church is to believe in a church that is taking place everywhere in every culture, among every group of people, in every class of people, rich, poor, whatever race, whatever ethnicity, whatever time in history, the church has found a way to take root among those people. So when we say we believe in a worldwide church, you're saying I believe in a church that is made up of people who are just like me and people who are nothing like me. And so I'm looking for a local congregation that reminds me of that. Paul, this is is no modern problem, by the way. I think this is, an, this is a first century problem. This was an issue when Paul was planting congregations. They were, it was very easy for people to say, wait a minute. We just want to have church with people who are converted Jews because Jews have all this context of the Torah and all this stuff. We don't want the Greeks here. They don't know anything with their stupid philosophy talk. We need people who know Moses and Isaiah. 
And Paul says in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is the most important thing about you is not your bank statement or your last name or your family heritage or what you do for a living or your ethnicity. The most important thing about you is that you are in Christ. That's the most important thing about you. And that trumps all other associations about you. Well, I vote this way, and I vote that way, and I do this, and I'm from here, and I grew up here, and I'm a... Paul says, yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's not unimportant, but it's not the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is that you are in Christ. Later, in, to the Ephesians, he says, Christ is our peace. He made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. With his body, he broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. That's strong language, isn't it? He canceled the detailed rules of the law so that he could create one new person out of the two groups. Get this. One new humanity, one new community out of two separate groups making peace, and he reconciled them both as one body to God by the cross, which ended the hostility to God. We think about Jesus being our peace. He's not only our peace in a vertical sense that ends our hostility to God, he's our peace that ends all of these walls of division that we create amongst ourselves. It's really funny because when we first started New Life Downtown, I realized right away the number one barrier that was going to happen in our congregation, it was zip codes. Because there's a little bit of like mutual snobbery about whether you're really a downtowner or whether you're really a closet Briargate guy. I remember <laughs> I was at the service at New Life North when they were praying over us and we were about to go and launch and I had a guy lean over to me and he goes, brother, you're going downtown? It's like, yep. Because you're going into a war zone. <laughs> I was like, no, I, I'm not actually. Like, it's, I love downtown. And he goes, we'll be praying for you, brother. I said, okay, I'll take the prayer, you know. But. So there's this like snobbery from people who maybe are more in the north. It's, oh, downtown, it's kind of all, you know, a lot of druggies, aren't there? We'll be praying for you, Glenn. And then from downtowners, there was this kind of, hey, um, do you live downtown? No? Oh. You live by powers? Oh. <laughs> I suppose you drive a minivan. <laughs> I do. Like, oh, that's cool. I ride a bicycle. You know, just keep doing my part to keep the earth green, you know. And so, and so there's this mutual thing, you know, back and forth of suspicion of like, are you really one of us? And this happens for the silliest things. This is what we do is so silly, right? And Paul says, look, look, stop. You don't need a church that is full of people who are just like you. You need a church that comprises, is comprised of people who are like you, because affinity is great, that's fine. But it also needs to be made of people who are not like you. People that you wouldn't have chosen in a million years, all of a sudden, some of our best stories from meal groups have been people saying, I'm so glad you did a meal group philosophy versus all these niched 
topics and themes because now I got to be around people that I would never have chosen. I don't tell the meal group that their leaders said that about them, but it happens. I would have never chosen to hang. But wow, I, I, I didn't realize this. Across generations, across <gasps> zip codes in Colorado Springs. And all of a sudden we realize, wow, church is meant to be not just what fits me, but what reflects the body of Christ. People I would choose and people I wouldn't. The last and maybe final objection is that, Glenn, I, I, I think the problem is I, I see an institutional church. I see a church that's like structured and corporate and there's money involved. And it's, uh, it's kind of a mess. I, I don't, uh, it's not for me. I, I really understand that. And frankly, there's probably a lot of good reason why there is such suspicion and cynicism. I don't blame you. There certainly has been a lot of abuse of power, a lot of misuse of funds. Unfortunately, the story of American churches has all too often involved some not-so-glorious elements. I get it. And I want to, let me chase a rabbit for a minute. I want to tell you that the financial part of this, this is one of the reasons why New Life Church as a whole is part of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. It's an outside agency that creates these standards, and there are over 300,000 churches in America. There are only about 100 or so that actually achieve the ECFA approval. New Life Church is one of those churches. That's a change that has happened since Brady Boyd has been our senior pastor, and one of the reasons he's made that such a priority is because we understand why there is cynicism about an institutional church that receives and handles money. We get it. But what I want to talk about today is not so much the financial accountability piece, though you obviously know that's important to us, but also the theological accountability piece. You say, well, I see an institution, I don't need to go to church or be part of a church. I am the church, Glenn. Wherever I go, I'm the church. It's like, good. Adventures in False Dichotomies, page one. That's where you'll find that argument. You know, people say sometimes, and I've heard this so many times, from dear friends even, Jesus didn't start a church. That's Paul's thing. You know, I love, anytime you find something you don't like, you just kind of say, well, that's Paul, right? And Jesus never said it. Like, okay, that's great. It's just one slight problem, though. <laughs> what do we have first? Which was written first, Paul's letters or the Gospels? Paul's letters. Paul's letters were written as the earliest New Testament documents, some 20 to 30 years after Christ. So that means if Paul's letters were written first, that means there were congregations already. There were churches already that he was writing to in Ephesus and Colossae and Corinth and all of these different places. He's, that's who he's writing to. And then it's after people start to realize that, oh, you know what, maybe we're not going to see the return of Christ in our generation. Maybe we should write down these stories. It's these very congregations and communities that compile together the stories about Jesus and the Gospels get written down. To put it with a little bit of a fine point, you wouldn't know Jesus if not for the church. Because it's these churches that's preserved 
and wrote down the stories about Jesus. So do you see why it seems so silly to say Jesus didn't talk a lot about church? That was Paul's thing. It's like what, the stories of the Gospels come from congregations. They come from churches. They're not meant to be contradictory to Paul or to John. So we say this phrase, we believe in the apostolic church. What does that mean? What, what, what does that mean? For us as part of New Life, we don't think of apostolic succession as in, you know, Peter was the first head of the church and then he passed it on to someone else, passed it on to someone else, and then you have, you know, the Pope. That, that's not how we think, no surprise. But what we think of with the apostolic church is we think of it as apostolic tradition, as in the teaching of the apostles, the faith and teaching and practice of the apostles is what we're trying to preserve and pass on. Acts 2.42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. They're saying, look, if this is going to be passed on, it has to be passed on within structure. So here's the thing. I think there's no doubt the life in the community of God has to happen outside of this place. It has to. It has to happen informally. It has to happen in, in meal groups. It has to happen beyond here. There's no doubt. The real stuff of doing life and faith and sharing life together happens outside of here. Absolutely 100%. But the trick when that is the sum total of faith for you is at some point you have to ask yourself, and how are you connected to the faith of the apostles? What connects you to the great and grand story that's been unfolding for 2,000 years? How do you know you're still participating in the drama? Does that make sense? Because sometimes it's, well, I just, man, I'm just doing the Christian thing. I'm just kind of doing it with my friends. Just, you know, just hang out whenever we want. And it's cool. It is cool until you want this faith to be passed on to your children and their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and then you're saying, who's going to preserve this thing? Who ensures that the faith of the apostles of Peter and Paul and James and John actually survives, right? The philosopher and, and, and novelist Franz Kafka tells a story about his Jewish faith and how his father tried to pass on some elements of the Jewish faith to them, and some things were there, and they did a few of these things, and a few, but not much. And so Kafka says, my father turned to pass the faith on to me, but it had all dribbled out before he got there. It had all dribbled out. Imagine a long line of people, and at the end is your great-great-great-great-great-grandchild waiting for a drink of water. And we're saying, oh, this is cool. It's, you know, it's faith, but... Hey, it doesn't matter what we put faith in, right? We can put faith in any container, right? It's just still the faith. And you start to pour it. And then you start to pass it on. And all of a sudden, when you turn to pass it on to the next generation, it's all dribbled out. What will we have? What will we have to connect us to the apostolic faith? What will we have that reminds us of the story that we're part of? I think there are many ways of thinking through this. I'm not saying that formalized structural liturgy or anything, I'm not saying that's the answer. I think there are many ways. But you have to thoughtfully say, is this faith that we are embodying and practicing when we get, is this actually the faith of the apostles? 
Or is this something I'm kind of freestyling here and making it up? Just be so cool, man. I'm so cool. I, I am, I'm not interested in another trendy church. I'm interested in a church that will steward faithfully the faith of the apostles. I'm not interested in hipster gimmicks or what. I'm, I don't care about any of it. I want to make sure that when we turn to hand over the faith, we've preserved it. See, when Jesus said to Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth, he's, he's not really talking, I don't think, about spiritual warfare. He's talking about being a steward of the gospel, a steward of the revelation of Christ. That's why he says to Peter, look, that's it. You're saying that I am the Christ. You're saying that based on revelation. Now listen, you're going to steward that. And it's based on the revelation of who I am, Jesus is saying, that you will let people be free of their sins or you'll keep them bound. But you're not going to run around willy-nilly freestyling, freewheeling, making up stuff about who's in and who's out. You're going to do it with a certain kind of holiness. That's what this is about. One of you asked me really a beautiful question shortly after I was ordained as an, as an Anglican priest. And he said, Glenn, why is it that, you know, you're talking about our sins being forgiven and you put the stole on and all that. Like, I, don't, I don't need you to, to tell me that my sins are forgiven. I said, that's true. You're right. You don't. Truly, you don't need me to tell you that your sins are forgiven. You absolutely don't. But when I stand in the office, what I'm saying is I'm standing in line with the church and when I say that on the basis of the gospel and who Jesus is, this is why your sins are forgiven, it says to you, you can believe that. Imagine hypothetically that there was some young, good-looking, charismatic speaker that was all over the country doing speaking tours, saying that nobody might really end up in hell. Just hypothetically imagine that. And that forgiveness of sins was available for anybody, and if you want to be loosed, you're loosed. How are you supposed to know that that is the faith of the apostles or not? You see what I'm saying? So I think non-denominational churches have to work hard to say, okay, how do we line up? That's why New Life Church, a few years ago, the elders said, let's make our statement of faith, the Nicene Creed, to say we're in line with the faith of the apostles, Right? But I think for me, when I stand up there and I put that on, I'm saying I'm standing in line with the church. And when I say God forgives your sins, the power is not in me. The power is in what Christ has done. And I'm standing in line with Jesus and saying, and so this is yours. And you can trust it, not because I got a lot of Twitter followers. So I don't. But you can follow me if you want. The favorite metaphor of the New Testament for the church is family. It's household, the oikos. The... And at once, when you say the word family, at once it is both beautiful and terrifying. It's beautiful even in the first century because a household in the first century involved slaves and extended guests, extended people. It included people who couldn't afford their own property. It included a wide array of people. And so in one sense, it's beautiful because Paul is saying, look, all of you, regardless of your strata, you're part of God's family. And the landowner may not like it that he's on level ground with the slave, but that's what Jesus does. 
And so it is beautiful, and yet it is terrifying. Terrifying because for some of you, household and family conjure up some of the worst memories you've had. And instead of it being the place where you learn to give and receive love, it was the place where you received nothing but pain. And I'm conscious of that. And I'm conscious of saying even to you today that the creed invites us to say that we believe in the church, capital C. Because it all just sounds too painful. I'm under no illusions that you'll overcome trauma in one week. It doesn't work like that. It's a process of learning to trust and slowly finding people that do indeed live out the gospel. I understand that. What I want to invite you to this morning is could you believe that there is a good, good father who is forming a family and he gave his son so that he would redeem a people and he sent the spirit so that he could work inside of us and give us the power to love and forgive and be like Jesus so that we might all be conformed to the image of the Son, that it becomes obvious that we all come from the same Father. Could you believe this morning that there's a good, good Father who's inviting you to join His family, who's asking you to participate in His story, to not be a lone ranger, but to join in the story?